Now, today we're starting in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to go today from Genesis to Revelation, okay? We're going we're to cover the whole Bible today. Uh, we're not going to look at all 66 books, but we are going to trace a theme throughout the whole of Scripture today. Uh, Lord willing, we'll make it uh, to Revelation today. And we're going to be looking uh, at today, and I, I think today is the last a Sunday in this series where we've been looking at some of the issues that are very uh, prominent in our culture today, sort of dominate the cultural conversation. I think today is the last, uh, uh, at least as far as my plans go, today is the last in that installment. And today we're looking at an issue that is very much in the forefront of our culture today. It's being talked a lot about. In fact, probably more than any time in my lifetime, especially in recent, over the last few years. And we're going to be talking about the issue of race and racism today. Race and racism. And as we've done for this whole series, we're going to be looking at what the Bible has to say about this. Uh, we're not looking at any other books or any other authors today. We're looking at what God has to say and how this issue re relates to us personally as individuals, each one of us personally as individuals. You know, we live in San Antonio. San Antonio is a very uh, racially diverse uh, city, uh, predominantly Hispanic, but also very uh, much a population of African-Americans and also Anglos. And so it's a very much, San Antonio, very much a, a melting pot of races and Cultures, And so this is something that personally we, we all need to have an understanding of what the Bible says about it, especially since so much is being said in the wider culture today. We as Christians need to make sure that our thinking on these matters is not driven by the culture, but driven by the Bible, driven by what God's word says about these things. And so as I've tried to do, with most of this series, as I've tried to do, I haven't dived too much into the realm of politics and government reforms and policies. What we're looking at today is what does the Bible say? And then how do we as individuals, how do we as Christians, how do we live this out? What does it look like to be faithful to God in this area of our life? especially when so much is being said in the wider culture today. And so we're going to start today in Genesis chapter 1. You should have this memorized by now because I think seriously this is probably the seventh week in a row that we've looked at this passage. But it is, it is absolutely foundational, not only to everything that we've looked at before, but especially to this issue of race. And of course we see in, in the very first verses of Genesis 1 that it declares that God is the creator of everyone and everything. We don't evolve from monkeys. We come from God, the creator. You are not a, a you, I don't know how many times I've said it, but you're not a, an orangutan that hit the genetic lottery. You are a creator, a, a created by God. You're not the result of random mutations and time and chance acting on matter. No, God is the creator, the origin of, of creation, the origin of the universe. And then in verse 26 is where we'll, we'll dive in, and this is where it narrows in on humanity. Verse 26 says, God said, let us make man, that's mankind, in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over everything creeping that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. As we zero in as, as the story unfolds, it goes into Genesis chapter 2 and we see the, the story of the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. We see how God created them and formed them and 
fashioned them and brought them together in marriage. And as the story unfolds, we see that, or even in in Genesis 2, Adam called his wife Eve because he says that she was the mother of all living, that she was the one who was going to be the, through her, that everyone who would ever be born would be born. And what we see here in, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is that God is the creator. He defines who we are. He is the one who says that human life is valuable. He is the one who says that human life is distinct from the rest of creation that we are not like the trees and we are not like the animals and we are not like the birds and we are not like every other animal, every other part of God's creation, that humanity was set apart as the image bearer of God to have dominion over the creation and to bear God's image in all of creation, to go and to fill the earth with God's glory. So what this means is that all human life is valuable and precious. All human life, every race, every race is valuable and precious in the eyes of God because we all have descended from the same common parents, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve is the the, the fountainhead of the human race, the, the, the first parents. This means that we are all related. We, we all share the same first parents. We are all one big family. These distinctions of of race, these were not distinctions that we see in creation. Not here at the beginning. That these developed over time, and we're going to track this development over time. And so we share the first parents. We're all created in the image of God. And so in a very real sense, you could say that there is only one race, the human race. So God creates Adam and Eve. He places them in the garden. It's paradise. Everything is wonderful. They're in perfect relationship with one another. and, And those of you who are married, imagine perfect relationship with your spouse. How amazing would that be? Can you imagine life without conflict? No sorrow, no pain. Everything is good. Everything is glorious. God calls it very good. And into this very good creation, Satan comes with a lie. Satan comes with deception. And Adam and Eve believe the lie. They enter into sin. They choose to rebel against God. And then into the world comes conflict. Conflict enters into the world through sin. And we we see this in Genesis 3 that that Adam and and nature are going to be in conflict. It says that nature itself is going to be at conflict with Adam, that, that before his work was easy of taking care of God's creation, but now his work will be hard. This conflict between man and nature enters in. There's also a conflict that enters in between Adam and Eve, between husband and wife. There's now conflict, and we can all say yes and amen. We we see that. There's conflict. But not only is there conflict between Adam and nature, not only is there conflict between Adam and Eve, there's also conflict between Eve and the serpent. Between the the offspring, he says, and this is Genesis 3.15, the offspring of the woman, the human race, and those who embody this lie of the enemy, the lie of Satan. And so here in Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity, that's conflict, between you and the woman. That's between the serpent, Satan, and the woman. Between her offspring and your offspring, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But right here in the midst of this sin, rebellion, the human race going in the opposite direction of what God had designed for us, God promises that one day the the union that existed between God and man 
It will be restored. It will be redeemed. It will be reconciled that, that this separation that now exists between God and man will be reconciled one day through this promised deliverer who will crush the head of Satan. This is God's plan. This is where things are going. Now, conflict continues to develop as we move through the book of Genesis. We see there's conflict in this first family between the first two children, Cain and Abel. And really, again, this is a conflict that's manifesting between what God called Satan's offspring, those who did not uh, follow after God's ways and, and those who would follow after God. And so here's this conflict between these two families. And Cain rises up and he takes Abel's life. He sheds his blood. The human race continues to deteriorate and we looked at Genesis chapter 11. Well, I just want to highlight one thing for us there. It helps us in this idea of, as we're talking about race today, Genesis 11.1 1 says, Now the whole earth had one language. Now God had told humanity to go and to spread out over all the earth and to fill the earth with God's glory as his image bearers. They had one language and the same words. And the people minor, migrated from the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make, make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And then they, they made this, this tower in verse four. It says, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So God had told them to disperse, to go into all the world and to, to make his name great. But instead they decide, no, we're going to stay here and we're going to make our name great. And so God comes down and we see uh, at, the, at the end of this story, verse 11, the Lord dispersed them. Verse 7, he confused their languages. So while they were building this tower, you know, I don't know what language they were speaking, but all of a sudden one of them is speaking Portuguese and the other is speaking Japanese and they can't figure out how to make this work and so they, they break off into people groups with a common language and then they disperse over the earth as God had intended for them to do originally. For, for, for humanity to cover the earth and to fill it with the glory of God. And so humanity now has not only different, uh, uh, we, we're not only are families now being separated, but, but cultures are being separated and languages are being separated. But God had made a promise to redeem humanity. God had made a promise to bring healing. God had made a promise to bring reconciliation between God and man. And in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 12, we start to see God's plan of redemption unfold. A plan of redemption that would take millennia, that would continue on through the course of the rest of the whole Old Testament. We see it in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, where God called a man named Abram, who he later changed his name to Abraham, a man we're all very familiar with. And so God called Abraham and he said to him, go out from your country, from your people, from your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you will I curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. I want you to notice the totality of this statement. As God here with Abraham is, is calling out a man through whom he will bring a family, through whom he will bring a nation, through whom he will bring the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. At the very beginning of doing this, 
God's plan is to bless all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth, all the races of the earth will be blessed in Abraham. What God was doing in Abraham was not only for the Jewish people. What God was doing in Abraham was not only for the children of Israel. It was for the nations. What God had in mind was salvation for the whole world. This blessing for all the families of the earth, all the peoples of the earth. This is the Hebrew word mishpakah. You can try and say that if you want. You don't have to. Uh, this is what will be translated in the, the Greek language when the New Testament is written as the Greek word ethnos, where we get the, the term ethnic, ethnicities from. The nations of the world, the cultures of the world, the families of the world will be blessed in Abraham. Yes, he's going to bless Abraham, but he says, I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And everything that unfolds for the rest of the Old Testament through the children of Israel, through the Jewish people, it is to be a blessing to the nations, not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. This is what God is doing through Abraham. Now, through the course of time, we see in the book of Exodus that the children of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. They're being oppressed by the Egyptians. They cry out to God and God delivers them. He raises up a deliverer, Moses, who, who sets them free from their oppression. Egypt is a type of the world. It's a type of the world's way of thinking, a type of, if you will, satanic thinking. And God sets his people free from that. He calls them out from the world, just like we who are in Christ have been set free from the power of the world, the oppression of the enemy, called out from the world. He sets them free through mighty works, through mighty acts of salvation. He leads them through the waters of the Red Sea in a great miracle which is a sign, a type of, of water baptism. He, he literally baptized them through the Red Sea, the children of Israel. And when that sea closed in behind them, what it signified was there is no going back to Egypt. Just as for us who are in Christ, who have passed through the waters of baptism, so there is no going back to the world. We are in Christ and we are a new creation in Christ. And he leads them immediately from Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. And the first place that they go as, as God is intending to take them into the, the land of promise to establish them as a nation through which he could bring the Messiah who would be a blessing to the nations of the world. Before they can go into the land of promise, they have to stop at Mount Sinai where they will receive God's law, where they will be instructed in, in how they are to live as God's chosen people. And it is through God's law that God marks them off from the world, where God sets them apart as a unique nation, as a distinct culture. It's through his law that, that God separates them as holy unto himself. As he gives them the law, of course, the most famous part of the law we know as the Ten Commandments. They have to stop by Sinai before they can enter into the promise of God. It sets them apart from the world. Just like we today, we, we don't follow after the course of the culture. We don't follow after the course of, of the nations, whatever nation we're a part of. We follow God. We, we follow his word. It's his, his word, which is a sword. It, it divides between death and life. It divides between light and darkness. It, it sets us as God's people apart, distinct from the world and from the culture that we live in, whatever culture, whatever nation that may be. 
But even in his law, even in his law, what we find is provision that God made for all of the peoples of the earth, for the Gentile nations, they could, any individual from any of the surrounding nations, they could become part of God's family, God's people. God made provision for it. So if anyone wanted to become part of the children of Israel, they could do that. Any of the surrounding nations, if they wanted to, they could be brought into God's covenant family. God made provision for that. And, and in, that, in his law, he wrote the provisions for how any Gentile could become part of Abraham's family. And what God had designed Israel to do was to be a light to the nations, that Israel would, would shine and show forth the glory of God to the nations of the world. In the book of Isaiah, the, the prophet Isaiah, three times he, he mentions this idea that Israel is called to be a light to the nations, that God's people are meant to shine forth to the nations of the earth. And so Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he calls his followers God's people. He calls us the light of the world to shine forth the glory of God. That God's people have always been distinct from this broken world and from the broken world system, unique and set apart for him to shine forth the glory of God. And yes, God was working, as I said, through the descendants of Abraham, through the family of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons, and the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and God was working through them. But as God established them in his promised land with his law, he made those provisions. So that anyone from any nation, from any tribe, from any family, from any race, could become part of God's covenant people. Even in the Old Testament we see this. Why? Because God had designed for Israel the blessing of Abraham to be for the nations of the earth. Irregardless of race. Anyone who had true faith in God could become part of the children of Israel. And so we see in the lineage of Christ, the Messiah... When we look at the book of Matthew where it tells us the ancestors of, of Christ, his lineage, in that ancestry there's four women that are named. All four of those women in the lineage of Christ, all four of them are Gentiles. All four of them are not descendants of Abraham, but rather the descendants of the nations around that had come to faith in God and had been brought into, grafted into, covenant with God. And so we see even here in the Old Testament that God's plan was to bless all of the nations of the earth. And so throughout the centuries, God would send his messengers to his chosen people who were chosen to be a blessing to the nations, and he would tell them that there was a Savior who was coming one of the offspring who would crush the head of Satan, who would fulfill the promise that God had made to our first parents, a Savior who would suffer, a Savior who would die, a Savior who would conquer, a king who would be royal, who would descend from the line of David. And that this king would not only deliver the children of Israel, but that he would deliver, he would be a deliverer for all of the nations of the world. And we know that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, he is that savior. He is that suffering king who conquered not through military might, but by laying down his life, who laid down his life as a ransom for sin because the problem in our world is a problem of sin. The conflict in our world is a, a result not of the color of our skin, but the result of the sin of our hearts. And that Jesus came to deal with sin, to defeat Satan, to defeat the life. And on the cross, 
through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, he, he uh, gave the blow, the, the blow that defeated Satan. That Satan is defeated today through Christ. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose victorious. So that those who are in him can be set free of sin. If you are in Christ today, you are not under the rule and reign of Satan. You're not under the power of Satan. You're under the rule and reign of Christ, filled with the Spirit of God, living in the power of Christ. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. Dwells in us. So that we no longer walk according to the pattern of the world, to the pattern of Satan, to the pattern of of Egypt, to the pattern of bondage. No, we have been set free in Christ. And Jesus, as he raises in victory, let's, let's go into the New Testament. Let's go into Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. Before Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father where he is seated today, ruling and reigning, before he ascends there, he, he gives his, his disciples, his apostles, their marching orders. Matthew 28. Let's look at verse 5 real quick. This is really cool. This is after the earthquake. These women are there at the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. They're there looking for a corpse. Their Savior slain, their Messiah conquering king killed by the power of Rome. But the Roman guards who were there guarding when when the earthquake happened, verse 4, Matthew 28, it says, the fear, uh, or when they saw the angel that appeared, that they were so afraid of the angel that the guards trembled and became like dead men. So the women were going to the tomb to see a dead man. And what they end up finding is the one who was there, who was supposedly, those who were there who were supposedly so powerful, who represented the, the most powerful force on earth at the time of Rome, that at the appearance of an angel that appeared, they soil themselves and become as dead men and, and fall down and, and, and they're, they're terrified of this angel. Verse 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you see Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. They went to find a dead man. They found Roman guards laying on the floor as dead men, but they did not find Jesus there. Because Jesus is not dead today. Jesus is alive today. Amen. So Jesus is going to ascend into heaven to be seated at the right hand of God, to rule and reign as the sovereign Lord of the universe. Verse 18, Jesus had directed his disciples where to go to give them their final instructions. Verse 17 says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Past tense, has been given unto me. Authority not only in heaven, but also on earth. Jesus is the king, not only of heaven, but the king of the earth. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of... All nations, all ethnos. That's the Greek word for that Hebrew word, mishpachah, the families of the earth. 
Make disciples of all nations, Jew and Gentile nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, leading them out of of bondage in Egypt, bringing them through the waters of, of baptism that mark them off from the world and teaching them to observe, going by Sinai, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, filled with the spirit and the power of Christ. The the scope of the gospel is not for just a, a small select group of people. The scope of the gospel is for the nations, the ethnos, every ethnicity, every race, every culture, every language to be brought into the family of God to be set free from the world, to be set free from sin, to receive the blessing of Abraham, to be reconciled back to God. There's only one way, and it's only through the cross of Christ. There's no other way for this reconciliation to happen between God and man. It's only through the God-man, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, I told you we were going to Revelation, so let's, let's jump over there. Revelation chapter 7. Revelation is an interesting book, to say the least. It's a prophecy of uh, the last things, the, the, the conclusion of, of history is in this book. God... Uh, chose the Apostle John to write down this vision. And so there's all these things that he sees. There's all these things that he hears. I want to look at one verse from Revelation today. It's Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. Actually, no, I I, I just feel very impressed to deal with something very quickly. It's this number of 144,000. Let me just deal with that quickly. Just real quick, you know, it'll be a real easy thing to to deal with. I don't know if you've ever had somebody ride up to your house on some bicycles and talk to you about being part of the 144,000. If they do, I don't want you to be led astray by that. I want you to understand what this represents. And so... It says that God seals a a, a number of of people, marks them for himself. And it tells us in verse 4 of chapter 7, it tells us that the number, and and it's very important that you you pay attention to the language being used. Verse 4, John says, I heard the number of the sealed. The number of the sealed, it was 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from Gad, 12,000 from Asher, 12,000 from Naphtali. Again, these are the 12 tribes of Israel. Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. So from the 12 sons of uh, Jacob, Israel, 12,000 sealed. Now, the Jehovah's Witness will tell us that there's only 144,000 people that will be entered into heaven and that through following their teaching, we can be a hundred, part of their 144,000. Um, that worked for a while until their numbers surpassed 144,000 and then they have kind of tried to scramble and, and fix this. But I, I want you to pay, pay attention. You have to pay attention. Verse 4, I heard the number of the sealed. Verse 4, I heard the number. But then in verse 9, he says, and after this, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number. So so he he hears a number, this 144,000, 10,000 essentially from, from every tribe. 
So, so it's, it's, a, it's a very symbolic number representing completion, representing every last soul that God is going to save. It, it represents the totality of all of God's people. He hears a number, but then he turns and he looks and he sees a multitude that no one can number. And so this, this hearing of a number is a symbolic reference to this great multitude that nobody can number. And, and look, from where are they taken? They're taken from every ethnos, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And they're standing before the throne, before the Lamb, and they're clothed in white robes and they're waving white palm branches in their hands. And they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belong to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's plan of redemption that started when Adam and Eve fell in the garden of, of a Savior who would come and crush the head of Satan when God called Abraham and said, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All of the families, all of the cultures, all of the languages, all of the races. And when we get to the conclusion of human history, what is standing around the throne is a multitude that cannot be numbered from every nation. From every nation, God is going to redeem a people from himself. Not just from one nation, not just from most nations. No, from every family, from every nation, from every race. There will be people standing around that throne, worshiping God, singing his praises. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And as we see Jesus' followers, as they begin to go and do what he told them to do. As we look at the book of Acts, what we find in the book of Acts is that these very Jewish apostles begin ministering to people who are not like themselves. They begin preaching and proclaiming the gospel to Gentiles, to people of other cultures, to people of other races, to people of other nations, to people of other languages. We see very quickly that they go into Samaria, this place that, that typical Jews despised. But, but now filled with the Spirit of God, all of these prejudices, all of these hang-ups, all of this in, innate racism in the culture, it falls off as Jesus' followers go and start ministering to Samaritans. Next comes this Ethiopian eunuch that Philip goes and ministers to, an African man. God singles him out to, to share the gospel with him. The, the Orthodox Ethiopian church today can trace its roots all the way back to this one man that Philip ministered to in that chariot in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 10, we hear, you know, Peter has that great vision of of the unclean animals and God telling him to eat these animals that, that typically Jews were not allowed to eat because of their kosher diet. And Peter says, no, I can't eat this. And, you know, there's pork ribs there and there's shellfish there. And it's, you know, like a, a, a big, um, what do you call it? Where, no, yeah, buffets. That, that thing they do in Louisiana where they put it all in the pot. Whatever. What's it? Boil, crawfish boil. That's what it is. He dumps that out. You know, there's all this stuff they're not supposed to eat. Peter's hungry, but he won't eat it. And, and Jesus tells Peter, he tells Peter, don't call unclean what I have made clean. And right then, these messengers come from Cornelius, who was a Gentile, that God, uh, an angel had appeared to and said, go and send for Peter. He's going to come and tell you something. And so Peter comes and, and, and when he's preaching to Cornelius, the Holy Spirit falls on them. He doesn't even give an altar call. He's just telling them about Jesus. He's just telling about what Jesus has done. And the Spirit falls on them and these Gentiles begin to speak in tongues. These Gentiles begin to prophesy. And Peter, who's there, a, a Jewish man who was just struggling with kosher diets now in a Gentile's home, sees these Gentiles 
speaking in tongues and prophesying. And he says, can we withhold baptism from these who have the same spirit that we have? And he says, now I see, this is Peter's words in Acts chapter 10, 34. Now I see clearly that God is no respecter of persons. Amen. That with God there is no partiality. We move into Acts chapter 13. God sends out one of the most Jewish Jews who has ever lived to be a missionary, not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. He calls the Apostle Paul and sends him out. A Hebrew of Hebrews is what he called himself. To go and to be a, a messenger, a, a light, a, a, a voice that would call the, the ethnos, the families of the earth, the, the, all of the different races to the Messiah, to the, to the Savior. To call them out. To save them. Because salvation is from the Jews but it is for the whole earth. And I want to just read you a couple of passages from Paul's writings. As Paul writes as a Jew to Gentiles. As he writes to churches that were made up of both Jew and Gentile. This group that had historically been separated are now being brought together in Christ. And because we live in a fallen and broken world, there's conflict there. And so Paul writes to them and helps them to understand some things. And so I want to look at just a few passages from Paul's writings because they, they really do speak to the issues of race in our culture and in our lives today. So Romans chapter 2, I want to look at a couple passages here. Romans chapter 2. We're going to go through these briefly. Romans chapter 2, verse 28. Again, you'll remember that the, the great sign of the covenant that God had gave, given to Abraham was the, the sign of circumcision. And so every... Uh, Jewish boy would be circumcised and Gentiles were not. And the, the, the issue became, do Jews need to be circumcised? And of course, the, the great council in Acts chapter 15 said, no, that the, the work that God is doing through Christ is a spiritual work. It's not one of, of a work of the flesh. It's, it's, we're saved by grace through faith, not by our own works. And so in Verse 28 of chapter 2 of Romans, Paul says, No one, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What he is saying here is that you can have all of the external marks of following God, but if it's not internal, if it's not on the inside, if it's not from your heart, it, it, it's nothing. It's just external. It doesn't get to the soul. It doesn't get to the spirit where the real issue is. In chapter 4, he clarifies this even more. In chapter 4, verse 16... talking about the new covenant that we have in Abraham, uh, through, through Abraham in Christ. And so he says, this is why it depends on faith. Remember, Abraham was the man of faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace, not by works are we saved, and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. And in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So here we see that Abraham is, is the father of, 
of, of all who believe in faith that it, it's not about the external, but it truly is about the internal. It truly is about the heart. You'll, re, you'll remember when God had rejected Saul from being king, that he, he, he called David to be the next king of Israel, and he sent Samuel to anoint David. And when Samuel showed up to David's father's house, to Jesse's house, he looked at the oldest of, of David's brothers, Eliab, and he said, oh, this has to be the king of Israel, the next king. Look how tall he is. Look how strong he is. Look how handsome he is. And God has to tell his prophet, no, that's not my chosen. I've rejected him. You are looking on outward appearance, but I look at the heart. And he goes all through David's brothers and he doesn't find anyone. And he asks Jesse, do you have any more kids? He says, yeah, there's this one little runt, the runt of the litter. He's out there taking care of the sheep. We didn't even bother calling him. And it says when he came in that he was not impressive physically. His stature wasn't much to behold. But as soon as he walks in, he says, God tells Samuel, that's the one. David is a man after my own heart. You see, too often we as people, we judge by external appearances. But God doesn't look at that. God looks at the heart. And here we see him telling Abraham, that, it, or, or rather that he's telling the Romans who, who were Jew and Gentile, that it's not about the external, but it's about the internal the internal. Flip over with me to Galatians. Just a couple more quick passages. I'm just going to read these. Really, the weight of these words carry themselves. Galatians chapter 3. Let's look at verse 7. Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So, so who, who is it that belongs to Abraham's family? The, 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 the race of the Jewish people or those who are of faith? Well, here it says those who are of faith. So, so physical descendant is not the issue. It is those who have the faith of Abraham. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We have been, as Paul writes about in, again, Romans 9 through 11, I don't want to go into that, but that we as Gentiles have been grafted into the blessing of Abraham, the promises that God made Abraham, they belong to us as part of Abraham's family. Look at Galatians chapter 26. I'm not, not 26. Chapter 3, verse 26. Yeah, Galatians 26. You'd be looking for that a long time. Galatians 3. We'd be looking at it all the way till church tonight. It would be great. Uh, Galatians 3, verse 26. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring according to the promise. These distinctions of Jew and Gentile, these racial distinctions that have divided the world are not the primary identity for the Christian. For the Christian, our identity, primary identity is in Christ as a son and a daughter of God. This is our primary identity. It sits above every other identity. Of, of Jew and Gentile, my, my racial, my ethnic, my cultural identity, my identity as a Christian sits above that. My, my gender identity of, of male or female, is that important? Yeah, it's important, but it's not primary. What is primary is that I am in Christ, that I am a child of God. Amen. This, this is, amen. 
He goes into slave or free, this issue of economic position. It's not the primary way we should divide people up in the world. Educated, uneducated. No, it is Christ. We are in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that these things are not important. It doesn't mean that they're irrelevant. It doesn't mean that race is irrelevant. God made us the way we are. God, God had us be born into the families that we were born in, into the cultures that we were born in, into the nations that we were born in, into the languages that we were born in. And God for himself is redeeming people out of every nation. And so race is important. I'm not saying it's irrelevant. It's just not primary. It's just not number one. And we as Christians, if we make it number one, we are not being faithful Christians. It has to be Christ above our race. We are Christians, number one. And so this means that I have more in common with my Christian brother who is an Iranian, who is in Iran today, than I do with the lost person who is my next door neighbor. He is my brother, my blood brother. He is my covenant brother and sister. One last passage today, I promise, one last passage. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. It's just a couple pages over from Galatians. Ephesus was a multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic, multilingual port city. Think Miami, think New York City. Very multicultural. And here Paul brings the gospel, and here a church is birthed, and there's people from all sorts of backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, worshiping together. And Paul talks to them about how they are to relate to one another. Again, this divide that had existed for millennia is now being erased in Christ. Verse 11 of Ephesians 2, it says, Therefore remember that at one point you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh with hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, the Messiah. We were separated. We were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and we were strangers to the covenant of promise. And we were without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So all of the racial tension, all of the hostilities that existed between Jew and Gentile, of which there were many, that in Christ, that wall of division, that wall of separation, that wall of hostility has been broken down, has been done away with. That we are now from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and every race, and every family. That we are being brought together as one in Christ. It says that he might make, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. So making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Listen, there's only one church. There's not a Jewish church and a Gentile church. There is one church. There's not a black church and a white church. There's not a Hispanic church and a Japanese church. There's not a Korean church. When you get to heaven and all the nations are there, it's one body, it's one church. Reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and peace to those who were near, both to the Jew and the Gentile and the Jew. For through him we both have access to one spirit, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Listen, all of these issues of separation that exist today, of race and language and culture and, and ethnicity, listen, in Christ, those, those are done away with. Those, those, dis, those, those issues of separation are removed because we are being made one in Christ. Now, again, I'm not saying that they're erased. I'm not saying that you are now no longer who you are. But what I'm saying is that we make that secondary to who we are in Christ, that that reigns supreme. And so that all of the hostility that exists in the world between races, when we come into the church, those hostilities, those dividing walls, those grievances are done away with because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And because we have been reconciled to God through Christ, we can now have reconciliation with one another. Amen. Amen. You see, there is absolutely, there's a lot said today about racial reconciliation, and I am all for it, but it will not happen without Christ. There cannot be reconciliation without the one who first reconciles us to God, and we receive forgiveness from God, and then we are instructed as having been forgiven of our sin against a holy God, we must now forgive those who have sinned against us. There's no reconciliation without Christ. So we must, so, so Christ truly is the hope of the world. He truly is the hope of the nations, the hope of every family, the hope of the races. Without Christ, there will not be racial reconciliation. And any discussion of racial reconciliation apart from Christ ultimately becomes a non-starter. And so in conclusion today, again, in our culture, and especially in the Western world, especially in our nation, there's a very much a concentrated effort, a renewed push to make someone's race the defining quality of their personhood, to, to make the color of someone's skin, who they are. There's this push to judge people and to push people into categories based on their outward appearance and not their hearts. To view everything through the lens of race. This idea is unbiblical. And we should not view the world this way. We should not view others this way. It is ungodly. It's not the way God views the world. Because God invites all of the nations of the world to be a part of his family. And so there's a push today to, to just, by virtue of people's color of their skin, to label some people as virtuous and just and others as evil and oppressors. That some are, are inherently righteous and some are inherently evil when the Bible says that no one is inherently righteous and that we all have fallen short of the glory of God. The main problem with the, the discussions of racial reconciliation today that, that makes people righteous or evil on the basis of the color of their skin is that it robs from people the hope of the gospel because the gospel says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you go to a group of people and say, no, you're already righteous, it robs from them the need for repentance of a, before a holy God. 
There's only one way to be made righteous, both for the Jew and Gentile, both for the white and the African and the Asian. There's only one way to be made righteous, and it is the cross of Christ. And we all go to the same cross. We all go to the same Jesus. We all go to the same Savior. It's the same redemption that we all need. And so anything that breaks people into categories and and says you have one message and you have another, no, it's the same message to Jew and Gentile. We all go through the same waters of baptism. We all come to the same table of the Lord. There's not a a Jew communion table and a Gentile communion table. We all drink of and receive the same Holy Spirit. This is why Christ is the only hope of reconciliation. Because before a a holy God, we are all equally humbled and equally in need of redemption. It is the heart, the character, the internal qualities of a person that matter to God. And that is what should matter to us as well. And so there is no place for prejudice in the body of Christ. None, zero. We all have equal standing before God. It is immoral, unrighteous, ungodly, sinful to judge someone by the color of their skin. What matters is the heart. And again, to quote Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., as he put it, to be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And so for any of us who harbor any ounce of racism or prejudice against another race, that is sin that must be repented of. That must be repented of. If we have been reconciled to God, if God has truly done a work in our heart by His Spirit, We cannot harbor any ounce of racism. It is ungodly. It is sinful. And it must be repented of. I know that many people struggle with things that have been done to them by people of other races. Today's the day to forgive. Today's the day to be set free of that. That that is the enemy trying to keep you bound when God wants you to be free. We can forgive. And in fact, we are commanded to forgive Because on the basis of the forgiveness that we have received. Jesus tells the parable of the the, the servant that was forgiven of a huge debt from the king. And then immediately he runs out and he begins to, to chastise somebody that owed him just a few dollars. The king says, you wicked servant, I forgave you of millions. And you hold this against them? The point of the parable is that what we have been forgiven of because of our sin against a righteous and holy God, it pales in comparison to the sin that has been done against us. And if we have received that forgiveness, it should change our hearts. And so it is a choice that we have to forgive. To forgive. And Jesus is the one who sets us free and enables us by the power of his spirit to walk in forgiveness. We live in a broken world. We live in a broken world. We are sinned against. I'm not trying to say that that's not real. I'm not trying to say that that hasn't had a profound effect in your life. But what I am saying is that God does not want us to be defined by the sins that were committed against us. 
He wants us to be defined by the work of Christ for us. And that Jesus wants us to walk in forgiveness. So I'm going to invite us to stand today. If you've been harboring prejudice, if you've been harboring racism, if you've been harboring things in your heart, today is the day to repent of that sin and to forgive the other person. And let me just tell you that repentance is the pathway to forgiveness. We repent of sin against God to receive forgiveness from God. If you want to forgive others, you must first repent of the sin that you have been harboring against them. So, Father, we thank you for the pathway that we have, that you have made for us through your son, Jesus, to to have reconciliation, Lord, between us and you and also between uh, our brothers here in this life. Lord, it is only through you. It's only after we have tasted of and received the forgiveness that only you can give that we are then able to forgive those who have sinned against us. Help us, Lord Jesus. Set us free from ungodly thoughts. Set us free from from even sins of the past that, that we have done and that have been committed against us. Lord, that we would not be bound by our past, but that truly you are making us to be a new creation, to live out our new identity in you as your sons and daughters, full heirs according to the promise that you made through Abraham. Thank you, God, that you are no respecter of persons. Lord, it is only by your grace that we are a part of your family. And Lord, we look to that now as we look to take of communion representing your sacrifice, your broken body, and your shed blood that you died so that we could live and that we could live for you. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.